Hi, I'm Dr. Vivian Smith Del Toro. Welcome to the Legacy Interview Series from Women's Centers International, WCI. I'm here today with Susan Burgess Lent, founder and executive director of WCI. And we welcome our guest, Jill Hoffman. Jill has been a Red Cross volunteer for 40 years. Her international services work with the Red Cross has taken her to an earthquake in Turkey, floods in Venezuela, refugee camps in Croatia, to Switzerland, Armenia, Guam, and Puerto Rico. In the United States, she has responded to every type of disaster, including months spent in New York City following 911, a total of 60 deployments domestically. She is a disaster mental health manager and an instructor for disaster cycle services and international services. Today, we're talking about the role of women responding to disasters. Welcome, Jill. We're glad to have you here today. First, how did you get into this work? Funny you should ask that question. I keep on questioning that myself. Um, <laughs> the way I got into the work was, um, if you think about it, my childhood started in Ecuador, South America, because my father, he was an agronomist and he created the first rice mill. And then we traveled to Australia, where my father again was working, and then Puerto Rico. And so it's my whole life was traveling until I was about 12 when I settled down and went to high school and got very interested in what my father was doing and decided I was going to be in the international field, worked in, in Peace Corps in Colombia and got into this whole crazy lifestyle working with different populations and disaster because in my very own hometown in Santa Cruz, California, uh, we had the horrible 81 floods and we had a number of people die, a whole mountainside and fell in a mudslide. And I was asked as a mental health person if we would help the Red Cross and work with the grieving of the families. And so that's how I started working in disaster in 81 in my own community. And then in 85, we had horrible fires. In 89, I became clinical director of the earthquake program because we lost something like 10,000 homes. We lost a number of people. And so in 18 months, I think we saw 25,000 people. And that sort of influenced me domestically on what could happen. Two years after the earthquake, I was hosting a Children of War conference. I was one of the people that was supposed to take care of the visiting dignitaries. And I took one of them out to lunch. She turned out to be the tracing director for Red Cross. And she remembered me a year later and asked me if I was willing to work in Sarajevo. And I had just seen the emaciated bodies on television and there's no way I could say no. A few weeks later, she said, Sarajevo is too dangerous. Are you willing to work in Croatia? And I said, oh yeah. And I ended up doing training and then I got selected to go to the Bosnian War. And that was the beginning of my work with refugee populations as well as disaster populations. You've worked in a lot of places where there's turmoil. Uh, what do you see as your primary role when you're on site? I pro provide supervision and psychological support to people who are most vulnerable in times of armed conflict, disaster, and forced migration. 
And given what's happening with uh, the changes in our climate, we've had increased populations having to be forced out of their livelihood and their homes. We've had armed conflict up the kazoo, even though we don't declare it a war. Disasters are happening chronically instead of once every two years. They're happening every year. They're happening three times a year. And so what I attempt to do is provide supervision of mental health workers, help organize projects to support refugees, bring in people to learn about their own resiliency and capacities to supporting themselves in time of war and disaster. I think the most important thing to realize is that Grief is universal. It doesn't matter what country you're coming from, whether you're male or female, but the ways in which we respond to grief are very different. And so it's learning different ways to cope within the culture that you live in and support the community in their own healing. Thank you, Jill. I wanted to uh, ask Susan how Women's Centers International, um, how do you involve the center in disasters? I've spent a lot of time thinking about the many things that a women's center is capable of doing. Right now, there's no clear mandate for a center to organize itself around a community disaster. However, I think that you put women together in a place like a women's center and you have significantly connected a group that can mobilize quickly and move information into the community. In Baraka Center, the word gets out unbelievably fast. They text, they WhatsApp, they phone. If anything's happening, these are the ladies to go to and get the word out. Going forward, we have to directly address the issue of how can our members help the community respond to disasters. Kenya is coming up on an election Elections have often been problematic in terms of violence in the community. How can we educate the women to be mediators, uh, helping to get correct information to the community, getting people involved in voting? Those are all things that these women are absolutely capable of doing, but need some direction. So Jill has been my mentor in in so many areas related to disaster response. And I think that for women's centers to be in a a critical role in Baraka, a thousand women, you can mobilize like pronto and they live in different communities. So you, you make the center a point for information, for materials, for whatever. That's a great service to the community. We'll get there. I think that there's other aspects to to putting women together in a place. You can get vaccinations done. You can get uh, voting registration, all kinds of non-disaster related events as well. But putting together a group of women to respond to a disaster is a huge undertaking and very important for any community. So thank you, Susan, for that. I'd like to ask Jill uh, if she could maybe give an example or a story of her experience of how women have rallied together to respond to a disaster. Well, uh, I'm going to share something domestically and then I'm going to share something internationally. On a domestic level, in the 89 earthquake, we had so many thousands of people affected 
October 17th had nine births in Santa Cruz County. And what for me was an amazing experience was watching a women, all who got, had babies born on that same day, create a self-help group mm. and negotiate the resources that existed in the community and support each other. And that sort of was like a trickle effect to all the other women in the community who rallied forth and did so many things. And then I'm going to talk about internationally. I worked in the Bosnian War and I worked with 15,000 refugees, 26 social workers in a refugee zone and 50 refugee camps. Most of the women's husbands, brothers, uncles, fathers were working in the Bosnian War. So the refugee camp was made up mostly of women and the elderly and their small children. Imagine Makarska, which is one of the towns I worked in, doubling in population. It had 30,000 altogether after refugees. And they were ill-equipped to deal with uh, having any students in their schools. They didn't have enough teachers or classrooms. What did the women do? They began to create these small units where they taught their own kids sometimes, and they taught other students to be able to continue school, even though there wasn't a structure that exists. And women did this by themselves. Another perfect example is one of uh, the women artists in Makarska was a quilter. And she used to do these beautiful tie-dye quilts. And she came to me and she said, I really, really want to do something for the women in the refugee camps. So she and I talked. And what we decided to do to heal the women is we asked women to get together. Some of them were Serbian, some of them were Croatian, some of them were Bosnian. They all got together and each one of them created a patch of material of the house that they lost in the war. And while they're sewing, they're telling their stories. Mm-hmm. And they sat in a group and they told their stories to each other. And at the end, we said, well, do you want to take apart the quilt? And each of you can take the patch home of the house that you lost. And they said, oh, no, we want it to travel the world. And lo and behold, it was in a museum for four months in Santa Cruz, California. Yeah. So we were able to do that, which was absolutely magical. The last thing I want to mention about the Bosnian War, women received four Deutschmarks a month, which is not very much. They got two meals a day and um, uh, usually a room for their entire family to sleep in. So they had food, but they had no money, no way to work within the community. What they created, along with the help of the social worker, my counterpart and myself, they created a refugee store in the local hotel where all the Umpafor soldiers came. That's the UN peacekeepers. Yes, thank you. All of the the Umpafor soldiers were going back to their countries and bringing things home. And what they did is they asked the hotel keeper if they could have a little room. And what they did is they did handicraft. They brought in quilts, crocheted materials, paintings. They brought in embroidery and they sold them. And 1% went to the Red Cross. The rest went to the women. A woman who was the director of Ralph Lauren for the home heard about this. And she sent over a container worth of materials. They didn't have sewing machines. They did everything by hand. It was magical. It was just amazing. And that's the resiliency of women. And I've seen it over and over and over again. 
in Venezuela, in Armenia, in the Turkish earthquake. I saw an amazing doctor, organized nurses and other medical personnel to get out to the field to support the families in Ankara. And, and it takes really creative thinking that helps support women and their community in time of, of war or disaster or forced migration. Two things that people lose in a disaster, loss of control, and they feel most vulnerable. And what I've always seen women do is rally together and become very powerful movers and shakers in supporting their community. I'm always touched by the resiliency and the support women give to each other and the, to their spouses and their community. I've never seen anybody multitask as many things or spin as many plates up in the air as women. And what I love about my work is I get to work with the most vulnerable and women inspire me quite often to keep on doing the work I do. Those are great yes. stories. Yes. The wonderful story. I really appreciate the story that you shared about the education and being able to have women begin to actually teach. And I think those qualities are very significant. Susan, can you talk a little bit about the women's centers and the quality of women, um, what they bring, of course, resilience, but there are probably many more that you've experienced over the last 10 years uh, in your role as the executive director of WCI. I believe that women are resilient for a particular reason, and that usually involves the fact that they're moms, <laughs> and they want to spare their children the, the horrors that surround them in some way. And so they're highly motivated to improve their environment in any way they can. However, I also believe that resilience uh, is not an infinite quality. I have seen women in situations where too many really bad things have happened and they're broken. And it's going to take a lot of effort to bring them back. We're really talking about recovering from trauma, which goes back to a conversation that we, we had with another guest about trauma-informed therapy. That's almost never available in conflict zones, in refugee camps. It's almost never there, or at least insufficiently there. It comes down to women supporting one another in any way they can. And again, highly motivated by the fact that they want to protect their children. So I, I think you get a level of cooperation that overrides trauma in order to just move through the day, get the kids fed, get them safe, get myself safe enough so that I can take care of them. All of these things factor into responding to unexpected uh, disasters, war. The women that I saw in Darfur and in Baraka in Nairobi, they were incredibly receptive to any opportunity that would improve their lot in any way. We can't assume that women are always going to triumph over situations. They need the support. That's one of the reasons that I care a lot about women's centers is because I see that as a place where women can find that community, that sense of, uh, we got your back here. When you're alone, it's really, really hard. The Women's Center for me is a community asset that allows women in 
pretty much any environment from a war zone to a refugee camp to an urban low-income area to rally together and get what they need to move forward. Thank you, Susan. I, I want to ask Jill if you could describe what you believe are the most important early responses that help set the stage for post-disaster recovery. If you can work with someone who has been traumatized immediately thereafter a disaster or an event, they're less likely to have six months down the line severe reaction. The most important thing that any human being can give to another is to fully listen without interrupting and without um, anticipating what the other person is going to say. The faster that people are able to move to a place that's safe, where they can get withdraw from the immediate danger, those are things that really help. In the first three to five days, there's a adrenaline rush, and it's what I call the heroic phase, where everybody's helping everybody else. And then what suddenly happens is people are exhausted. And then all the external resources, all the agencies, all the people come in from outside to help. The next disaster happens. The resources pull out to deal with something more immediate. And what I think helps the community at best is when disasters aren't there and war isn't there, the preparedness in anticipating people who might be most affected by this and preparing for that. So those are the two things. One is on a very personal level. If you listen to people, especially right after the event has happened, they're going to be less traumatized. Two, if you have in place already resources for them, it's not as traumatizing. When I worked in Africa, I often saw international NGOs, the UN, they would come in with their solutions and sideline the solutions that were readily available if you asked the leaders in the community, what do you need and how can we help you? You take charge of this, we'll back you up. I think it's so important to support local community ability because you're going to leave. If you're a helper, you're leaving at some point. They have to stay there. Ask the community what they need to save themselves. Because one, you empower the community to do better this time and next time. I've seen so many agencies come in and bring in their own supplies and bring in their own materials. That's right. If it's already there, don't bring it in. The community will tell you. They have the answers. And you from the outside haven't experienced being in that community. I also think that on an individual level, and this goes more to domestic disasters, people in the community equip themselves with the necessary skills, first aid. Every city has what they call a CERT program, Citizen Emergency Response Response. Training. You can go through that. And you know how to triage a situation in your neighborhood. What better gift to the community than for you to be able to take a leadership role when people are injured, when people are confused and upset, that you show up with your skill set and say, I'm willing to do what it takes to get this situation in order for the people who are most affected. It's the kind of thing we say, oh, I'll get around to taking a first aid course. I'll get around to putting my emergency uh, earthquake kit together, that sort of thing. 
you have to get to it because these things are not predictable. You make a commitment to yourself, to your family, and to your neighbors that you are going to be ready. And, and the other thing I was going to sh- share is if you ask those vulnerable communities and you place things in those vulnerable communities ahead of the time to support them, mm-hmm. go to your churches, go to your community centers locally. That is so, so helpful. With climate change happening, the conflicts around the globe and tension simmering in our, our country, all of these things make us very vulnerable. I'd like to hear your thoughts about how the world of disaster response is changing. I think it, it, people are becoming a lot more aware you go local, but in the grand scheme of the international humanitarian community, that's kind of like turning an oil tanker. It takes time and the focus on empowering local actors to take the lead, do the work, uh, help them with recovery, are talk right now more than action. But there is an awareness that the international humanitarian response has been kind of paternalistic, not very inclusive, and a little bit uh, arrogant about how they help. And so they're all doing some soul searching these days. Their upper management are mostly white men. They aren't responsive to the needs of women. They aren't sensitive to the nuances of local communities. And so it'll change. It, It changes because people press on it. I see something very encouraging in terms of I'm going to talk about women first, of course, because we're focusing on women today. I'm very lucky. The regional CEO of the Northern California chapter where I work is a woman. My CEO for my chapter is a woman. My counterpart, who's a paid counterpart in international and service to armed forces, is also a woman. And so I'm very lucky to be led by women and supported by women. But in terms of disaster, What I'm constantly touched by is the resilience of the communities having to deal with chronic disasters. I worked in in Venezuela in the floods in Vargas, the hills where all the most vulnerable lived. Thousands of people died from those mudslides and there were 24,000 people missing. What I saw in the community is families helping each other and it's very similar When I worked in Armenia, I was working with 25,000 people who were still in railroad containers 10 years after an earthquake. They had very little possessions, but they were always sharing with their next door neighbors. Or if they had an elderly person on the block, the younger people would walk like the half a mile to get the water to bring it back to the elderly person. I watched the resilience of people immediately after disaster and even years later watching out for the most vulnerable. And that's what touches me the most. That's what touches me now in disaster, especially with the chronicness of how often it happens. People are worn out, they're exhausted, but they're still there for each other. As we close out our program today, I just want to thank you for sharing your insights. My mind right now is just is on fire with what can I do how can we uh, respond differently to disasters? How can we be proactive? 
and uh, as women leading this very profound journey, we just need to be prepared. Do either of you have a go kit in your car? Oh, um, I have a, a pseudo go kit. My husband always tries to keep me prepared. What are the components? The most important thing to have in a go kit, and people don't think about this, is a whistle. If you're hit under something, something falls on top of it. They don't know if you're okay or not. You have a whistle, whistle. around your neck. The other thing is watch out for putting anything in your house in your closet in an earthquake. Everything falls on top of it and you can't access it. So your go kit in the car should have enough water for three days, should have comfortable shoes, not open toed. It should have a change of clothes. You need a whistle. You need a, a flashlight. Uh-huh. If you can get a crank radio that doesn't need electricity, that's really important. Have a poncho or if it's raining, have enough food for three days. I always carry, it's like a wrench that you can turn off your water heater and you can use it for leverage to get something pried open if you need to. And then uh, one of those um, Swiss army knives, bungee cords and rope. You have to pull stuff, move stuff. If you look at www.redcross.org and look up a preparedness kit, it'll tell you a whole list. We do have to close out our program. (laughs) So I want to thank you both for sharing your insights today, Jill and Susan. We welcome your support of the Women's Centers Movement. Your contributions help women transform their lives in the most challenging environments. Please donate at www.womenscentersintl.org. Links to our podcast series are posted on our homepage. Tune in next week for a conversation about the experience of young moms in Kenya. Again, thank you, Jill. Thank you, Susan. Thank you, Dr. Thank you. Have a wonderful day.